We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 15. So if you brought your Bibles, please turn to Mark 15. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 32 this morning. Our series in these weeks brings us to to the most sobering texts in all of Scripture, the suffering and death of our Savior. And as we come to our text for today, Jesus has been through a trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, and they accuse him of blasphemy. They deliver him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he acknowledges he's the king of the Jews, which is a direct challenge in Pilate's mind to the sovereignty of Caesar. This is a treasonous statement. So he delivers Jesus over to crucifixion. Jesus is scourged, he's mocked, he's beaten, and he's delivered to crucifixion. In our text for today, we're starting in verse 21 through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Almost every religion and every ideology has its visual symbol. The Jews have the Star of David. Islam has the crescent moon. Buddhists have the lotus flower. And at least since the second century onward, the symbol for Christianity has been a cross which is a sobering symbol. It's a disturbing and offensive symbol because of its association with such a cruel and brutal execution, a a brutal punishment. And it's a thrilling symbol because as we look, we see the cross and we see that there's no one on it. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and victory over sin and victory over death. It's a thrilling symbol. 
And it's a hopeful symbol because it's the symbol of the cross that gives us hope that sinners would be reconciled with God, that we would gain eternal life. The cross is our symbol because the cross is the heart of the Christian message. It is the heart of the gospel. The cross is in the center of everything in the Christian life. It's the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of every Christian's life. And almost every teaching in the New Testament is in, at least in some way connected to the cross. And the cross must be the center of our lives. It must be the center of this church. It must be the center of our preaching and our teaching across this whole church. The Apostle Paul said that the cross would be the heart and the substance of his preaching and teaching. He told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For him, it was a message of first importance, he said in 1 Corinthians 15. Author and professor Don Carson says this about the Apostle Paul. He cannot long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. He goes on to say, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever replacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. God help the church that strays from the centrality of the cross. Amen? Jerry Bridges writes, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. There are messages and things proclaimed about all kinds of things, but there is only one essential message. No gospel no salvation. So in our text for today, we come to the cross. We learn much all throughout the Gospels about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we learn a lot about ourselves through learning about Jesus Christ. And we see two prominent attributes or, two, or, qual- or character qualities of Jesus as he is crucified in this text. The first attribute we see is the humble obedience of Jesus. The humble obedience of Jesus. One of the most remarkable attributes about Jesus is his humility. I mean, if you were to imagine, not knowing Scripture, and you heard that God was going to take on flesh and visit us, what kinds of attributes would you imagine for this God taking on flesh? You probably imagine his power and his majesty and his transcendence. 
impressiveness, not humility. But Jesus was humble. The Apostle Paul summarized his humility in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by stepping out of heaven and taking on human flesh, where he was worshipped by angels. The divine Son of God humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus declared in Mark chapter 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is the humble obedience of Jesus. Jesus humbly and willingly submitted to the will of his Father always, no matter how difficult it was in his flesh to submit himself fully to his Father's will. And he did it regardless of the cost. Always. Jesus knew what was coming. At any point, Jesus could have put a stop to the circumstances leading up to his crucifixion. He could have just said the word and called down legions of angels and wiped out his enemies, and it's done. But he didn't. He was obedient to the point of death. What he was about to do and experience in his suffering was an absolutely agonizing thought for him. It was excruciating. And he fervently prayed in the hours before his death. And he told his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's talking about the hour of his suffering and death. And he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, the cup of judgment and the cup of wrath of God. And then he prayed this, Yet not what I will, but what you will. It was the will of the Father that Jesus would lay down his life to save sinners, and Jesus humbly obeyed. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon was probably a, a Cyrenian Jew. Cyrene was an area in the northern part of Africa which was, had a, a, a sizable Jewish population. But very likely he was a resident now of, of Jerusalem, at the time, so it's also likely that the church and Mark's readers of this gospel would have known Alexander and Rufus, who were Simon's sons, and it's likely that they may have been part of the church. They may have been believers. And Jesus had been brutally beaten prior to this. He was scourged with a leather whip Paul talked about this. It had bits of bone and bits of metal tied in the ends of the whip. 
and he was whipped and whipped and whipped on his back and on the backs of his legs. And his, his back would have been absolutely lacerated. He was bleeding profusely. Normally, the one condemned to die would carry his own cross to the execution site. And it's, it appears that he, he started carrying the cross but was unable to because of the scourging. And the loss of blood would have made him far too weak to carry it. So the Romans compelled Simon to carry it for him. And the Romans had the authority to do this. They could just press anybody into their service. Conscription. So they compelled Simon to help Jesus. And what he carried was the cross beam, which was the horizontal beam of the cross. The vertical beam would have already been at the execution site. It would have been sunk into the ground and ready. In verse 22, it says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This execution site was outside the wall of of the city, and it was in this place that either had the appearance of a skull in some way, or they named it that because it was a place of execution. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh or gall, but he did not take it. This was a drink that would have had a numbing or a narcotic kind of an effect on him to dull the senses. It would have had a a bitter taste. And it was probably offered by Jewish women from the city as an act of mercy and compassion for those that were going through this brutal punishment. But Jesus refused it. What he was about to do was far too important He wanted to be in full control of himself. He wanted to be unclouded, undulled in any way. And they crucified him. Mark, remarkably, in this passage, embellishes nothing. He just states what happened. He's not trying to draw all kinds of emotions out of his readers. He just tells what happened. And they crucified him. Four simple but sobering words. Mark says in verse 25 that it was the third hour when they crucified him, which would have been around 9 o'clock a.m. Crucifixion was not a punishment that was done uh, for Romans. Romans did not, Roman citizens did not face crucifixion unless it was an extreme case of treason or something along those lines. This is a punishment that was meted out to slaves and foreigners. And Jesus was laid down on the crossbeam, and they pounded nails through his, his wrist near his palm. And then they would hoist him up and attach the crossbeam to the vertical beam. And then they nailed his feet to the vertical beam. This was a terrible, cruel, and brutal punishment. The ancient Roman philosopher and scholar Cicero called it a most cruel 
and disgusting punishment. And it was humiliating, it was shameful, because they would strip the person first before crucifying them. And it would often take two or three days for someone who was crucified to finally die. You would die by suffocating or asphyxiation because the way you're hanging there, your chest cavity sort of collapses. You can't get breath. Don Carson said this, so you pulled up with your arms and you pushed with your legs to open up your chest cavity so that you could breathe. And the muscle spasms started so that you collapsed. That could go on for hours, sometimes days. And the soldiers kept watch. If for any reason the soldiers wanted to finish you off a little faster, for example, because a special feast day was about to dawn, what they would do was smash your shin bones. Then you couldn't push with your legs anymore and you would suffocate in a few minutes. But Jesus was very weak, lots of blood loss, and he didn't last two to three days. Verse 24. And the soldiers divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Not only did that fulfill prophecy from Psalm 22, verse 18, but it was one of the perks of such an unpleasant kind of a job for a soldier to watch over those being crucified. Clothing was much more valuable in ancient times. So they would divvy up the clothing of the condemned, which was yet another indignity. And the authorities then would post a sign on the cross above their head so that people passing by would know what the condemned was executed for. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Jesus acknowledged before Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, yes, what you have said is true. So to the Romans, Jesus was a political rebel. He was a traitor. But Jesus wasn't the kind of king that Pilate had in his mind who would sit on an earthly throne. That wasn't the idea. This was a spiritual kingdom, Jesus said. For now, it was a spiritual kingdom. And the sign above Jesus would have irritated the Jewish authorities, king of the Jews. I don't think so. And that's one of the ironies of the cross. The one who was mocked as king was the king. And it wasn't just, he wasn't just the king of the Jews, he was the king of the universe. After his resurrection, he was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He has all authority, not only in this realm, but in every realm. 
forever. He was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant where God promised King David that his throne would be everlasting. And Jesus was the rightful heir of King David's throne, and he would occupy that throne forever. Jesus is king. Jesus humbly and willingly submitted himself to the will of his Father, no matter how difficult that was and no matter what the cost. And it was the will of the Father that Jesus would die for the sins of mankind, that his death and resurrection should purchase the salvation of everyone who believed. That was his will. 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And in John chapter 4, Jesus was tired after a long journey, and his disciples urged him to eat. Jesus, you're hungry. You've been traveling. You need food. And Jesus replied, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish. Accomplishing the will of the Father was Jesus' very food. It was his life. He submitted to the will of God always, regardless of the cost. And that is a challenge for us this morning. As we look at the example of Jesus, it's probably not likely that you and I would be called on by God to be executed for our faith, probably not in any time real soon, in this country at least. But there will be countless times when God will call you to obey his will, and it will be difficult. Really difficult. And you won't feel like it. And you'll be tempted to sort of cut and run. You may even pray like Jesus did, Lord, would you remove this cup from me? It might be he's calling you to be reconciled with somebody who's been an enemy for a long time. It might be that he's calling you to forgive somebody who's hurt you very deeply and the wound is just festering. It may be that he's calling you to cut off a sinful relationship. It's difficult. And then you submit yourself to the will of the Father and the Spirit will give you the grace and strength to not only obey but to press on, regardless of the cost. First, we see the humble obedience of Jesus. The second attribute of Christ we see here is the gracious endurance of Jesus, the gracious endurance of Jesus. Not only did Jesus have to endure that brutal, cruel scourging and mocking and crucifixion, He also had to endure the merciless mocking and the reviling and the abuse. And he endured it with patience. He endured it without reviling in return. The text says that Jesus wasn't the only one crucified that day. Verse 27, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left, which also fulfills prophecy. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And those robbers also reviled Jesus. They got in on it as well. It says in verse 32. But interesting, in Luke's account, Luke adds that one of the robbers was convicted of his sin and he repents. And he says, We were justly condemned, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This robber was saved. He received salvation in the final hours of his life. And even at the end of their days, God can still break through in someone's heart. Even at the end of their days. And grant them repentance and save them. I've seen it many times. And there may be people in your own life who are at the end of their days and you've been praying and you've been praying. There is always hope. And I know some of you have seen it. That God in his grace saves someone in the end of their final hours. And the abuse kept coming. This was the Passover time. And the execution area was in a public place so there would be people walking by. Verse 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, so you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This in itself was a fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm, 27, Psalm 22, 7 to 8. And they were bringing up something that they remembered Jesus saying, although they got it wrong. Jesus did say, after he had cleansed the temple of the money changers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. In Rome, that would have been a capital crime. You don't destroy any religious house of worship. It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up again in three days? Ha! Can't even come down from the cross. They didn't understand what he was saying. The disciples didn't either until later. He wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about his body, the temple of his body. Kill this body and, and I will raise it again in three days. And that's what happened. And the religious leaders also got in on the reviling. Verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. This is another irony of the cross. The one who saves others can't save himself. Now, what do we mean when we use the word save here? The word means a lot of things. In verse 31, the chief priest meant that Jesus can't save himself 
from this predicament, from the cross. He's stuck there. He can't save himself. Could Jesus have saved himself if he wanted to? Of course he could. Wouldn't have been anything for Jesus to save himself. Would have been a satanic temptation, right? Wouldn't Satan just want him, just jump down from the cross and save yourself, Jesus? Brings to mind what Mark chapter 8, Jesus was talking about his crucifixion being killed and Peter said, he's rebuking Jesus. No! What did Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus had to be crucified and die and raise. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and said that his wife Mary was going to bear a son and he was going to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The Hebrew meaning of Jesus means Yahweh saves. So saving in the Gospels means saving people from their sin, from its guilt, from its penalty and judgment, its eternal effects, and from the power, its power in our lives. That's why Jesus came. He came to save. So they mocked him. He saved others. He helped others. He healed people. He even raised some people from the dead. But he's powerless to save himself. He's stuck there on the cross. He's not much of a savior, is he? Don Carson writes, But Mark knows, and God knows, and the readers know, that it is by Jesus staying on the cross that he saves others. He cannot save himself and save others. The whole purpose of him hanging on the cross was that he could bear the sin and the judgment of others by not saving himself. He saves you and he saves me. Verse 32, they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. If he suddenly jumped down from the cross, do you think that they would see and believe? No. It was all part of their mocking, part of their ridicule and their derision. Philip Bliss writes this, bearing the shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So what did Jesus fire back at all of the mocking and all the abuse? What was his response? Nothing. He endured it with silence. How else did he respond? Father, forgive them. These people were totally ignorant about the absolutely profound spiritual work that was occurring right in front of their eyes. 
They had no idea what Jesus was accomplishing on that cross. They had no idea that the Son of God was paying the penalty for their sins on that cross. He was in the act of purchasing their eternal salvation if they would just repent and turn and trust him. Jesus was silent in the face of mocking and derision. And if you live your life faithfully and boldly among your unbelieving co-workers and friends and family, at some point or another you will face opposition, you'll face some mocking, some ridicule, some scorn. Jesus promised that in the world you will face tribulation. Lots of promises of God we love. We don't like that promise too much. He said a student is not above his teacher. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute you. So how should you handle it when you face unjust suffering because of your relationship with Jesus? Listen to what Peter shares in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. He says this, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's no credit in that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to his father. He himself was in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. On the cross we see the gracious endurance of Jesus. The cross is absolutely the center of Christianity. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are crucial to understanding all of Scripture. So there are a thousand implications we could draw from the centrality of the cross, but I'll just touch on 600. What time is it? Or 60. Six. We'll do six. Six implications of the crucifixion. Number one, the cross demonstrates the unfathomable love of God for you. The cross demonstrates the unfathomable love of God for you. The Bible is crystal clear. From God's point of view, he made you in his image. But because of your sin, you are a lawbreaker, a sinner, a transgressor, a violator of God's holy commands. And because of this, the Bible says that you are enemies of God. 
and we deserve nothing but judgment. And yet, he loves you. And he made a way for you to be forgiven. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because you got, you were less sinful or you cleaned up your act in some way. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a, a love beyond my understanding. Number two, Jesus suffered so you don't have to. Jesus suffered so you don't have to. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No blood, no forgiveness. No blood, no salvation. And Jesus shed his blood for you. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' death was substitutionary. He died in your place. Jesus suffered so you don't have to. The wrath of God. Jesus said, just come to me with open hands of faith. Come to me, empty hands of faith. And trust me. Number three, the cross of Christ is the great equalizer. The cross of Christ is the great equalizer. No matter how great someone's intellect, how talented they are, how good-looking they are, what career they're in, what office they hold, how many followers they have on Instagram or TikTok, how successful they are, every human being is a sinner, and every human being needs a Savior. Everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. No matter who you are, all have sinned and all need this Savior. School teachers, business people, politicians, heads of state, dictators, stay-at-home moms. No matter who you are, forgiveness and eternal life Peace with God are only granted by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. If you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, I'm asking you, please do not wait another hour. Don't wait. You will leave here and you will forget. If God is moving in your heart, trust in him. Come to him with empty hands of faith. Thank him for what he did for you on the cross. And know in the depths of your soul that salvation is in no one else. Come to him by faith. And you will be saved. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Number four, Christian life. The Christian life is a cross-centered life. The Christian life is a cross-centered life. Jesus laid out in no uncertain terms what it means to follow after him, to be his disciple. He said in Matthew chapter 8, 34, 35, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It means we are to die to self-will, to lay down our self-oriented, self-aggrandizing ambitions and purposes and embrace God's will no matter the cost. Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The Christian life is a cross-centered life. Number five, don't expect earthly glory as a Christian. Don't expect earthly glory as a Christian. Don't seek it. God created you so that you would bring him glory, so that you would reflect his glory. Jesus was crucified with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, which calls to mind a situation with James and John in Mark chapter 10. I don't know if you remember this. James and John came to Jesus with an incredible request. They tell Jesus, Hey, Jesus, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They wanted glory, power, influence. They wanted to be associated with Jesus and his glory. Can you imagine the audacity of that question? I can't fathom it. They were far less interested in associating with a crucified Savior. They still needed to learn what it means to identify with Jesus. The places of honor in the kingdom are for those who take up their cross and follow him. Take the lowest place, become a servant. Those who lay down their earthly glory and honor, those are not, not those who clamor after it. Those are the ones that God honors. Remember, Jesus was rejected and crucified outside the walls of the city, outside the camp. We're called to identify with Jesus outside the camp and be willing to be rejected by those around us. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Don't be a glory chaser. Identify with Jesus who suffered outside the gate. Identify the one who loved you enough to lay down his life for you. Identify with the one who loves you with an everlasting love. Identify with the one who will never leave you or forsake you. Go to him outside the camp. We seek the city that is to come. Don't waste your time as a Christian trying to be the popular one among non-Christians. All you're going to do is end up compromising your testimony and being a glory stealer. 
Number six, the cross of Christ demands a holy life. Jesus did not lay down his life for you just to deliver you from the penalty of sin. It did that. Hallelujah. He also came to deliver you from the power of sin, to redeem you from the slave market of sin. We are slaves of sin apart from Christ. Paul greets the churches in Galatia this way. Galatians chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from this present evil age. Never take the grace and kindness of God for granted. Never treat your sin in a casual manner. Scripture calls us to kill it. Pursue holiness and the power of the Spirit and walk worthy of the sacrifice Jesus made for you. The cross of Christ and his resurrection three days later were the most glorious and important events in all of human history. But to the disciples and to the followers of Christ, Jesus' death on the cross was a very dark day. They thought that it was a crushing blow to the cause of the kingdom of God. But oh, what it accomplished. John Chrysostom was an early church father, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the fourth century. In reflecting on the horrors of the crucifixion and the death of Christ, his view was this. The story seems over. Yet through what had appeared to be an unmitigated tragedy and injustice, humanity and creation itself are healed. The sovereignty of sin is broken. The citadel of the devil demolished. The cords of death cut. Heaven's gates opened. The curse overturned. The Holy Spirit sent. Apostles chosen and commissioned and an entirely new way of life introduced on earth because of the cross. Hallelujah. Amen. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he could give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for loving sinners. We're amazed by that sentence. But thank you for sending your one and only divine Son that he would give himself for those sinners who deserve nothing but your wrath and instead offer them glory, a relationship with our Creator God. Oh Lord, I pray if anyone in this room does not yet know you as Savior, I pray God work in their soul I pray, God, that you would soften them to the message of the gospel. Would you draw them? Would you grant them repentance and salvation?
And Lord, may we as believers never forget, never tire of hearing the glorious good news of the gospel. Lord, would you use us to reach many in our community? Use us, I pray. Be glorified, Lord, in your word. Be glorified through us. We praise you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. In Christ's name.